Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Alex Edelson from Slipstream Investors to discuss portfolio construction as a limited partner. Alex and I dig into his journey in the venture industry, working for Nigel Morris from QED Investors as their chief of staff and the lessons he learned from one of the industry's heavyweights. Next, we cover why Alex decided to split off and launch his own VC fund of funds with Slipstream in 2021 during the pandemic and why he believed that he was the right person to launch his own VC fund of funds platform. We dig into some of the initial LPs that were attracted to his strategy and why they decided to support Alex and his mission in the beginning. Finally, we ask Alex to provide some insights into his approach to portfolio construction and risk management as a limited partner and how he balances diversification and concentration in his investment strategy. But before we jump into this week's interview with Alex Edelson, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. All right, John, welcome back to the tank. We've missed you, but you've been busy. And so we last week, we had the Collision Conference in Toronto, which is a global technology conference that now says it's going to stay in Toronto for one more year. I mean, it's a busy week for people who are coming off a collision. You know, I know that you were speaking there. We got to sync up backstage at the speaker's room. You know, what did you think of the conference and uh, how did you think it turned out based on all the media fanfare on all the negative side of it? What is your takeaway from this year's Collision Conference? I saw a lot of happy faces there, and I saw a hell of a lot of energy. I rolled around on my wheelchair all through the booths and stuff, and man, were people like, they're pumped. And this is the future of our country. So, you know, we, we need to embrace it. And, you know, the one comment I heard a lot of, you know, everybody putting the words AI or the letters AI, if they like again, AI has been around for so damn long that, you know, if, if you don't have AI in your product, what, what have you been doing for the last, you know, 10 years uh, as well? So, but anyways, I loved it. I'm glad it's here for another year. And, you know, the, uh, the negative noise and, and, and I get it, but I think the reality is it's filled the hole that wasn't filled. And if the hole was filled properly, they wouldn't be here in Toronto. Now, I think that they're only coming one more year. I heard a rumor. I don't know how substantiated it is, but it might go to Vancouver uh, for the next three years. So, you know, good for Vancouver. I think it was great. I agree. I mean, good for Vancouver if they can get it. It's good to have this thing kind of travel around the country as Vancouver becomes a more prominent ecosystem in the country. It's closer to the West Coast where a lot of people fly up from, so they may get even better guests for it. I think it would be good for it to move to Vancouver. But to come back to Toronto for a sec, I mean, I agree with you. You know, I spent our team spent a couple of days there. We had a couple of speaking slots where AI was covered, uh, but only la- in the later part of my conversation. I think the one knock that people had this year was that there was not enough substantial content for people to really sink their teeth into on the panels and discussions. It felt a little bit of uh, hand-wavy content and, yes, a lot of AI and non-relevant topics. But the booths were busy. The investor area was busy. There was tons of events. We hosted our own event. There was other investor events and networking sessions. And I think that's where people really uh, you know, seem to see value is all the private dinners and, and private meetups that people really enjoy. And I say there's no other conference that I've witnessed in the technology and investing world that brings that caliber of people to our backyard that we can have access to for a full week. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was for three full days uh, yes, I spoke a little bit and did a little bit of the pitching, but it was all in the rooms or in the facilities uh, around it. And you're absolutely right. I, I thought it was a great celebration. And uh, well, if they're gone, let's just hope that 
you know, there's somebody uh, entrepreneurial enough that has some great ideas on how to replace uh, that energy. Yeah, just to give a sense of like the events, you hosted their uh, CCI event uh, one night, which had an incredible attendance list I saw. We hosted a 100-person LP and founder investor event uh, in the middle of the city in Yorkville. So I agree. I, I mean, we're both benefiting from this uh, from a networking standpoint. So I'm excited to have it go on for another year. You know, switching gears, there was a pretty interesting financing article written in uh, the Globe and Mail last week on Clutch receiving a 97% Priced recap round. Sean Silkoff wrote the article, very detailed. Uh, I think there's a couple interesting th- facts here. So first, for our audience who do- doesn't know the company Clutch, they are a uh, auto marketplace for buying and selling reused used cars. They have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and some of their investors uh, are well known investors that you know piled into the uh, used marketplace when interest rates were at zero. The interesting thing, though, about this financing round is not that there was a 97% recap on the valuation of the business, but more along the lines of how one investor, uh, a spinoff of the brand project LP, who was an early investor in this company, who had a pretty sizable position, was going to see their position wiped out from 12.5% ownership to 1.14% and losing all their rights. This is what they call a pay-to-play round. And the shocking part is that this investor had not mentioned anything to their LPs until almost the you know, 24, 48 hour mark until this decision had to be made. So, you know, what are your thoughts here? Uh, what are the lessons here to be learned from the investment side and also from the fund management side? Yeah. And again, I don't have any insights other than the article that I, that I, uh, that I read, but there was two interesting components, one for the company. So we have a company that uh, had a, uh, a post money value. What was it? 550. Yep. This financing was done at a pre-money value of $15 million, but $20 million was going in. That What that means then is, well, aside from the 97% decrease, one investor is now taking control and wiping out everybody. And You wonder, well, when you do this pay-to-play, what happens to the employees? What happens to the incentivization? of the uh, of the CEO etc there must be a bunch of stuff being done there top ups of uh, of stock options otherwise how do you keep employees that's number 1 which was kind of interesting i've never seen a control position being done on a pay to play like that in recent memory the second part uh, which was the part that it did confuse me a little bit was the request to investors to borrow money from your investors in order to increase your position in this pay to play. And it was a little unclear to me why that was being done. And the only thing I could see was if they didn't do it that way, would it breach its concentration risk? And what that really means is that when investors put money into your funds, there's typically a cap of say 15 or 20% cannot be concentrated by one portfolio company. The problem with this is, well, you're kind of getting around the spirit of the concentration risk in which your investors have negotiated with you. So I did find that if, if the facts were true, that that does make it difficult for some of the limited partners to say, hey, dude, I put this in here for a reason and you're playing around with it. And that's not usually viewed very kindly by your investors. 
Right. And just so our our listeners understand what's going on here, when you set up an investment fund, there's three vehicles. There is the limited partnership, which has limited liability. It's just a flow through partnership. You have a general partnership, which is called the GP, which manages the LP vehicle that makes decisions on behalf on behalf of that pool of capital. And then you have a management company, which receives fees for managing the fund. What happens in this situation is the GP is asking the LP vehicle to take on debt and borrow against the other winners in the portfolio, which is also very risky because they're private companies that don't have really liquidity necessarily, to invest more into a company that they hope will continue to stay as a winner for their portfolio. However, the concentration risk also needs to be adjusted. So you're asking for two things. One, borrow money as an LP vehicle or against your LP holdings. And two, increase the concentration risk in your LPA, your limited partnership agreement. Those are huge asks to do. And I would never in a million years want to be in that room having a conversation with our LPs about doing that. But I'm just shocked that one, this level of detail came out for people to even consume. And two, that LPs were not even really aware of this until about 48 hours before they had to make the decision. So I think maybe the question is like, how does a situation get to this point? It sounds like something was moving pretty quick and somebody's come in with an offer and and someone getting excited that I want to participate and I'm seeing my investment wipe out and I'm trying as hard as I can to reverse the big wipeout that I have in our investment. The lesson learned is when you've made a bad investment and all of us do that, suck it up move on and go find your next great one. But trying to recover a lost investment, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And assuming if the article was right, I suspect there's some bridge burning occurring vis-a-vis your investors. And this is not a time in this environment to screw around with investment capital because they're just looking for any reason why not to give you money. So again, maybe it's we, we don't know all the facts, but what is surprising to me is all of that detail uh, that came out was also quite surprising to me. That's that's usually never uh, reported. No, I have to guess that there was probably some very disgruntled LPs that received this information and they shared it back with the journalist reporting on it. That's where I think, but yeah, agreed. We don't know anything. I think the biggest takeaway from what you just said, John, is, is really important for people to understand. When you have a failing company in a portfolio, you need to understand that that is part of the strategy. There will be losses and you need to know when to cut your losses. You know, Just because you have reserves set aside for a company doesn't mean they automatically get them. That's why we don't call them reserves at Ripple. We call them deserves. And the other thing about it is knowing that this is a long-term game, a long-term relationship building with LPs. If you break that trust once, it's gone forever. And it's very, very hard to get it back. So very interesting. We'll see how this folds out. You know, moving on, we saw a couple more M&A transactions happen in in the private equity space. We saw Swedish enterprise technology giant IFS uh, acquire Quebec City's POCA. Uh, which was a um, pretty big transaction for the Quebec market, almost 200 million or so. And, you know, this is interesting because we're seeing more of these sort of strategic private equity buyers kind of coming in and gobbling up these these software companies. We saw IBM doing it. Last time we spoke about NASDAQ doing it. You know, what are you seeing out there for some of these 
enterprise software platforms getting acquired by larger strategics, larger private equity? And what does this say for maybe a turning of the market for maybe exits and M&A? So there's two different things going on. Number one is that we are seeing the closing of the bid ask spreads on valuation. Matt, you and I, you know, a year ago predicted that was going to happen. The gap hasn't fully closed, but it's closing. So you've got this activity occurring. And then separately, you've got existing strategics in particular who might be facing their own challenges in a challenging market environment and are and are now starting to go okay you know what we're going to be under pressure to grow our top line and now that we see the bid ask spreads you know continuing to close i think you're going to start to see more strategics getting a little bit more aggressive and the financial players backing off a little bit because uh, you know a lot of them borrowed money in order to make these deals work and you can't do that uh, that 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 easily, and the one phenomenon that I think is going to reverse between say 2019 and 2021, when financial players were paying more than strategic, which is crazy, we're just getting back to what should be the norm. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this buy and build conversation is happening way more now internally at these large strategic organizations. And they're resulting to buying uh, because prices have come down, as you said, the technology has already been tested and proven, and they can get up to speed a lot faster and maybe show their investors and stakeholders, look, we're doing something. We're not just going to invest and then 10 years later show something. Yeah, get off my back. <laughs> exactly. You know, one other topic we saw come out recently, and you've talked a lot about this, about how the Canadian universities, you know, need to start punching up higher and start developing more. You know, three Canadian universities, though, however, made the top 25 highest ranked computer science universities uh, with University of Toronto ranked number 12. University of British Columbia at number 21 and University of Waterloo ranked 22. Interesting to see UFT ahead of Waterloo. Um, and this was part of the QS World University Rankings list. What are your thoughts here? Waterloo had the largest number of undergraduate students studying computer science and computer engineering of the top 25 schools, but it was it was placed on number one on, the, on that list. You know, are you shocked? Uh, do you think that we uh, don't talk about this enough or is this already well known across Canada, but maybe not the rest of the world? I, I'm not shocked that the rankings came. I mean, th- those, if you were to ask me, those would be the three top uh, schools and depending on how you order them. But but for a decade there, University of Waterloo was, you know, uh, virtually in a class of its own. What is interesting is the three major cities uh, being, you know, McGill, uh, Toronto and Vancouver have really thought up. Because they get you know tremendous amount of resources. Ten years ago, although U of T had a lot of great engineering, you know, mechanical, etc. When you look at the the medical school there, you know, the the improvements they made on the AI, etc. U of T has made unbelievable strides, and they're definitely world class. But it doesn't mean that Waterloo is still not the incredible school that it is. Uh, from an engineering perspective, but the resources and the size of those other schools are so great that, you know, I'm not surprised. The one thing that is great is people around the world consistently talk about the great engineering talent 
in Canadian schools. And that is really our natural resources. Yeah. And I did hear recently that the uh, endowment firms or endowment funds at these schools are starting to come together and act collectively, kind of like the Australian system has to start making investments. What are you hearing on that? Well, we, we had the latest move is called the university pension plan. So that merged the pension funds of U of T, Guelph, and I want to say Queens. I, I may be wrong, but it was three of them. And the reason why they did it is to get more scale so that they could be investing more. Now, they left the endowment outside of that for the moment, but I suspect that they're going to merge all the two. The, the, the challenge in Canada on endowments, I believe University of Toronto has the largest endowment and it's a, a couple of million, sorry, a couple of billion dollars, something in that. Maybe I'm off by a bit. You compare that to Harvard. I think Harvard is what, 50 billion. I don't even know where I'd lost count. So the whole endowments on the university side are extremely modest in Canada. Uh, I do see, I have had a number of discussions with universities that are starting to really think on how do they actually start to pop those up. Interesting. So the endowment of U of T UTAM is separate from the pension that you're saying was rolled in. Yes, they are separate. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I think something uh, the University of Toronto endowment was recently quoted around three point two billion, which is quite small when you compare it to some of the larger universities around the world. And that's the biggest one. And most of the universities that I talk to have an endowment under a billion dollars. Now, I will tell you what they're actually doing. Some of them I won't disclose who it is. Is looking at those endowments and investing as a VC in their students in a number of their innovation programs. That I love. Closed loop. That's cool stuff. That's cool. And we got to see more of that. So I'm excited to hear that. You know, this wouldn't be a news rundown if we didn't talk about OpenAI and ChatGPT and all the AI news out there. One thing that we're starting to see a little bit more, and it's always funny when you see cer certain names pop up alongside OpenAI, but, you know, there was a news article about comedian Sarah Silverman and two other authors filing a copyright infringement against Meta and OpenAI basically for using their content without permission to train their artificial intelligence language models. So, you know, what do you think is going to happen here? This is continuing to be a, a story that we're seeing in the news where these models are being trained on other people's data. Do you think we're going to see more defined like rules and regulations and moats being created around corporate data, obviously, but also personal data, like personal content, like this podcast, it's my podcast, I guess my content, do I have the right to say that they can't use it to train their future podcast script writing? Who knows? I don't. I I don't know. But if you made it available for the for public use, that's the thing. I don't understand how you're going to break that down. I, I I don't know. I mean, I've had a conversation with this just yesterday with Margaret Atwood talking about the impact of AI on the creative industry, and she kind of shrugged at it and said, "The creativity comes from original human thought." By its definition, there is not original human thought on the creative side, at least not yet. So, so, but I wasn't. I was fascinated to see, uh, you know, Sarah Silverman uh, do this right now, and I wonder if it's a test case to really determine what are the copyright rules here. And I think the answer, what I've asked a number of lawyers, no one knows right now. So it will be interesting to watch. Well, I think this obviously is something that we as investors think about when we speak with some of these new AI companies, we're asking, what's the biggest existential threat to your business model? Is it the fact that you control none of the data that you, you operate on? 
or is it regulation? You know, uh, so, some of these lawsuits underscore the risk that some of these chatbot developers face when using copyrighted material or private data material to create responses to some of these prompts that people are using on their systems. And I think that is something we as investors should be talking about and maybe considering. Yeah. And, and by the way, the conversations, uh, I'd say over the last month or two, far more about private LLMs and then being supplemented by the public LLMs. And I think a lot of companies have this massive reluctance that we're not going to use any of our data and contribute it back down in the LLM. But how do you create this kind of dual engine? So apparently Microsoft has a private data warehouse for individuals to not allow it to cross. Individual data warehouses, you cannot let that data out to train their OpenAI or Microsoft large language models. We are testing this right now live in our own business right now. And it's only our private data that will stay with us because we have an obligation to companies that we meet. We cannot share any of this information. It cannot be released, but our team would like it in order to provide more insights back to our portfolio companies. So we're testing this live and 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 trying to make sure that nothing else leaks. So uh, I'll have some more good information probably in the next uh, few months to see how easy or hard is this uh, to achieve. I have one last question for you. Threads versus Twitter. Oh my God. Why didn't I bring that up? Okay. So obviously Mark Zuckerberg, the biggest copycat in history, but for some reason the media treats him as a gospel and that's crazy to me. But when Elon does anything like it, it's ridiculously vicious. I think the fact that they're trying to make it more fun as a fun place to kind of communicate with people versus like a political heated animated discussions like Twitter is. I think it could find a place where it's only used for more fun engagement like Instagram is. You know how LinkedIn has evolved as the Facebook of our generation. You know, no one really goes on Facebook anymore. Instagram is a place where you have more uh, relaxing, you know, sitting on the, uh, on the, on the crapper time to, to look at stuff. You know, maybe Threads becomes that, but Twitter is where business is still being done. It's where the, the heated conversations with intellectual, you know, honesty and conversations happen, free speech happens. And maybe you have these two platforms that can coexist. But I don't know. I saw a tweet thread about how, you know, it feels like, you know, the, the early 2000s when we had like 50 different apps we had to sign into to post the same content. I think that's going to be the problem people are going to get bogged down by. Are we going to see Google Plus all over again? That's what I wonder. Oh, my God. Correct. Oh, my God. Google Plus. <laughs> and that had... Bringing back good memories. They had 90 million uh, registered users. So the key will be uh, wait three months and let's see what the, the, the daily or monthly active users will really be as opposed to people just exploring it. Yeah, the forced conversion is also quick, easy. Forced conversion and this bullshit about if you change your mind and want to delete it, you got to delete your Instagram. That's tied selling and that's not good. Zuck, I'm telling you, if you want to go and smack again into the FTC in the United States, you guys need to really think about that one. But we all know Zuck does the same thing all the time. He begs for forgiveness after he's already contemplated the mission and tries to get it out there and says, okay, we'll pay a little bit of fine or something. But we'll see. I mean, we signed up for an account. I have not posted on it yet, really. So we'll see. <laughs> all right. Thanks for John, joining us in the tank today, John. All right. See ya. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Alex Edelson from Slipstream Investors. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Alex. Thanks for having me, Matt. Glad to be here. 
you know, Alex, you have had such an interesting journey into the venture world, which I'm excited to get into. But before we jump into that part of the story, it'd be great if you can give our audience a brief background on how you made your uh, made your way from the legal side of the world into the venture capital industry. It's not a linear path. There was circuitous. I practiced law for seven years. I tried to get out of it for many of those years. I finally got out with a, when a friend who had a two-year-old fintech um, charitably offered me like, an opportunity to join him. And when I left, like I didn't set out to get into venture. I was really just trying to like move in the right direction professionally. And the hope was that like I would eventually find something that was sort of energizing and, and more meaningful and a, and a better fit for me. And you know, the startup I joined actually didn't work out. And then, but it moved me in the right direction. And I was and I was fortunate to then find a home at QED, uh, which sort of set me into the venture world and we went from there. So you spent obviously a bunch of time working in Washington, D.C. on the legal side, as you mentioned, but it was really your time getting into venture working uh, with Frank Rotman and Nigel Morris at QED in 2018 that really gave you the jump off point and the big opportunity to sink your teeth into venture. You know, How did that opportunity come about? I was coming off of a failed startup, thinking about next steps. I saw a job posting on LinkedIn for chief of staff role with Nigel, um, who runs QED and had founded Capital One. And it seemed like, you know, not necessarily a role that would appeal to me, but a place where I could learn a lot and, and people I could learn a lot from. But I had in mind like a chief of staff role that I think is more like Washington, D.C. focused, not a West Coast chief of staff role. And it was more sort of a West Coast chief of staff role. A law school classmate of mine at PayPal introduced me to someone um, on the investment team at QED. And Nigel and I ended up having a conversation that lasted a long time, months, and and we ended up, I ended up joining them uh, full time after, you know, probably two, two and a half month long conversation. Wow. So what does a chief of staff do at a firm like QED? The roles evolved over years. So I think the role even now is different than it was when I was there. But when I was there, it was like, it was close to Nigel. It was also sort of, I viewed it as like the hub. Um, There were sort of spokes in the organization. I was trying to connect the dots for everyone. And have a sense for what was going on with the team and have a sense for what people needed and what people wanted and what they were seeing and and trying to connect the dots so that we were sort of advancing the organization in a way that was consistent with what people thought was best and that accounted for the team's interests, but also had the management team's perspective prioritized. For an audience who may not know QED, which I hope they all do, but it's one of the leading fintech firms out there in the Valley, you know, over a billion dollars in asset center management spun out from the Capital One team. You know, Frank Rotman, well-known uh, fintech investor, well, good Twitter follower for a lot of people out there. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned working alongside Frank and Nigel and the rest of the team at QED during their time there that really opened up your eyes to the value great investors like they bring to the table in venture? It was really fortunate for me to be able to start there because, you know, in some senses, they were very experienced. They'd been investing for 10 years. Um, They had a track record. They had funds that were performing well. On the other hand, we were still transitioning to like sort of an institutional venture firm with outside capital, institutional outside capital. and, and, And we were evolving sort of from an emerging manager phase to an more of an established manager. We didn't talk in those terms, but that's what was happening. I had the benefit of learning from their 10 years of work and track record, but, but we were also learning on the job. And so there were a few things um, that stood out to me. And, and I'll speak a little more broadly, not just about QED, but, but obviously rooted in my experience at QED. 
So on sourcing, for example, some of the lessons that stand out to me, the value of helping founders, even if you don't invest, um, like the challenge, like, like challenging them constructively and respectfully and pushing them to find the biggest and best version of the company that they're envisioning and that they're starting. Being transparent about your interests and telling them where you stand and doing it for years, like thanklessly, largely with, with companies you're not investing in. Um, it's funny because that doesn't sound like sourcing. That sounds like building relationships or maybe picking to some extent, but, but that's how you build a flywheel. Uh, there was a big lesson from them and just like how you build a flywheel. Founders love QED. Those founders introduce QED to other great founders. And, and for many years, QED, I think, would say it solved pretty much every deal that was relevant in the space. FinTech has expanded a lot. There are many more founders. There are many more investors. And it's harder to do that today. But I think QED sees as many FinTech deals as, as anyone, probably more than pretty much everyone. In terms of picking, just like having the courage of your convictions and not being afraid to be contrarian or doing non-consensus deals. That's, a, that's something that I saw many times. Um, in terms of winning, I sort of going through the categories that I think of um, in terms of what a great venture firm looks like. In terms of winning, like understanding why you're winning competitive deals and leaning into that when you're investing and when you're fundraising. And being honest with founders about who you are when you're trying to win a deal. Like if you promise something that you can't deliver on later, that could work out in the short term, but that may not work out in the longer term. If founders are disappointed in the long run, they feel like you're not meeting expectations, that can hurt your reputation and that can make it harder to develop a flywheel that um, is sustainable. And so those were some lessons on, on winning and sort of on adding value. Like it's really important. And I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, VCs aren't that helpful. You should just stay out of the way. Let the great founders do their work. And and I think it's true. It's probably true in many cases. And But I think the best VCs are helpful or can be helpful. And when considering things like platform type offerings, like should you help with talent or should you help with you, should you have a Slack channel for founders? Like having a really high bar for that. If you can't deliver on whatever you're considering offering at a very high level, be careful about doing it in the first place. It's also just tempting. You know, I was seeing you know, we had hundreds of founders and everyone has unique needs and, and you'll get a couple requests to do a thing. And, and it's tempting to like try to do everything that founders ask of you, but, but you can't be all things, at, at least not at that size. I mean, maybe a mega firm can, but picking your spots and being really deliberate about how you're going to add value and doing it at a high level whenever you engage was a lesson. In terms of like generating liquidity, having a framework for it. And like when companies raise capital, thinking about whether you're a buyer or a seller, even if you wouldn't necessarily have a chance to buy or sell in that round. And also like one framework that resonates with me personally, if you can return your fund by taking off like only 20 to 30% of a position, that's probably worth seriously considering. And then from a portfolio construction standpoint, just like sticking to your strategy, being thoughtful about ownership and valuation. Like if you demonstrate how helpful you can be you can win competitive deals without being the highest price to offer. Those were some of the lessons from then and, and since then, but like rooted in my experience there. But if I were to step back and sort of be more general in my answer, it'd be like, QED has an edge. No other venture firm has more fintech experience, fintech expertise, 
or more relevant, op- more relevant operating experience, having found Capital One, than QED. And that's, a, that's an edge that QED has that's unique to QED, and it's durable. So it's, a, it's an advantage for QED in every fund it raises. QED understands its edge. They've built a strategy around it. And that, that's a lesson for me in like, how do you build a venture firm that's, that lasts and can perform across funds? You have some edge that's durable and you build the strategy around it. And the last thing is just like that VC in, is sort of personal and artisanal in nature. I sort of, I felt like I lived that there. Um, I was really, really grateful to be able to watch like an amazing investment team who made it personal and made it artisanal. Unbelievable uh, you know, insight. I feel like you were answering the questions and I was reading our pitch deck for our fundraising because all the things you mentioned are things that we talk about in a team about like how our past emails to founders that we say no to need to be better than the ones we say yes to. And the founders that we pass on, we we can't just look at it as a transaction, but as a relationship that because we want to be around for 25 years, we care about those relationships. There's so many founders we passed on, you know, for better or for worse, that we still are friends with and we still actually work together with. I had a founder come in this week who we passed on their seed round and asked us to look at the A. Unfortunately, we don't lead A rounds, but I offered to introduce them to 10 more Series A funds. You know, if that was a relationship that I burnt a bridge on from the very beginning, those conversations would not have happened. And then the other part about like knowing what your edge is and really being intellectually honest, obviously Frank and Nigel know what they're good at, but honing in on that, pushing your bets when you really know that you've got something there and being honest about that every time a new fundraising round happens is also important. You know, returning capital like we have in our first fund and selling positions when we still believe in certain things that's also a conversation that's tough to have. But obviously, Frank and Nigel have that partnership just like we have. And I think that's what makes an enduring venture capital fund. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and something you said resonates with me in terms of my own business too, which is which is a struggle for me. It's a constant struggle. It's like, I want to follow up quickly and people re- appreciate speed and getting an answer quickly. But I would rather move a little slower and write like a four or five paragraph email explaining why it's not a fit and how I might be able to help then like give them a quick pass. But like then the interaction may be over and it's, it's not really the way I want to start or, or sort of have the relationship stand at that point. Right. Exactly. I mean, so let's get into that. After two and a half years of QED, you decided to split off onto your own and launch slipstream in 2021 during the pandemic as a fund that invests in other early stage venture capital funds that are difficult to find hard to evaluate and hard to access. You know, how did you go about even starting this journey as a fund investor? And why did you think you were the person to solve this gap in the market? I had a few observations while I was at QED that made me think I could execute on a strategy like this. And first was, it seemed like most of the best performing funds were small early stage funds. A lot of them were emerging managers, but they don't have to be emerging managers. So like no universally accepted definition of emerging manager, but let's say for purpose of the conversation that it's like first three or four funds, limited track record. QED and its first four funds were small. Obviously it was an emerging manager and those four funds have done really well. And, and, but we were growing and, and we were, I was observing that house venture changes as you grow. The exits are only so big. You can only get so much ownership. There are only so many winners. And so the performance that these smaller funds can put up 
if you want the best returns in venture, focusing on these small funds was a good strategy. The second observation was, you know, many people struggle to evaluate these smaller funds in part because they're emerging managers and have a limited track record. As they develop a track record, they often grow and their returns may change, not be as compelling. But I, I felt like I was developing a framework for how to think about these small funds with a limited track record. I, I was seeing the inner workings of a top emerging manager as it was transitioning to his, an established manager. And we spent a lot of time and I spent a lot of time talking to people on the team about what we thought generated returns in the categories of, say, sourcing, picking, winning, adding value, portfolio construction, getting liquidity. And just generally the qualitative characteristics the top early stage venture firms have and I was also learning at the time from like 150 plus founders we had invested in. I was learning from them about like what they thought was so great about QED and how it could improve. And so I was seeing it from QED's perspective, which, you know, I joined, they had 10 years of investing experience under their belt. But I was also hearing about it from these founders. And, and it was interesting because like the framework that was sort of developing in my mind was not quantity. It was like almost all qualitative. You don't need a track record to test for the qualitative characteristics. What I thought you needed was to be in the venture ecosystem. Like you need to know the founders and you need to know the investors, especially at the next stage. And they have the qualitative information that you need. And I thought, I realized, like, you know, I might be in that community of people who have the qualitative information that I would need to test for this framework. And so at the same time, like we were working with these small early stage funds to source deals and in other ways. And, and I was seeing them go through their own fundraising processes. And it was, it was interesting to me because I didn't think their ability to, to fundraise necessarily correlated to their ability to generate returns. Some that seemed great were fundraising quickly and some that seemed great were struggling to fundraise. And, and that seemed like an opportunity, or at least at the time, it was kind of confusing for me. But as I kind of put it all together, it felt like an opportunity. You know, the third thing was like, when I showed up at QED, I didn't know much about venture. And, and I was learning more than I, I probably realized. Like what was happening was some of these emerging managers that we were working with, like over time, I was building relationships with them and they wanted to talk. And I was like, I, I can't help you at all. Like I don't know anything. I'm like a recovering lawyer. And, and they're like, you're the COO. And so I started as Nigel's chief of staff. I should have said I became the COO and, and general counsel at QED. And they were like, you're the, you're the COO of QED. And I was like, I really feel like I'm learning this on the job. And, but we ended up talking about portfolio construction or fundraising or investor relations or team composition or how to allocate limited resources across a platform function or like what information you should be tracking as you're making investments and companies are growing and raising and raising rounds. And I realized that like maybe I had, I was developing a perspective that could be helpful to folks who are earlier in their evolution as investors than we were at QED and, I don't assume anyone needs my help or that I have the answers or that I had the answers. The realization was more like, I thought maybe I could help and, and that that could create a flywheel of my own, which again, I wasn't thinking about at the time, but I realized afterwards, like maybe I could create a flywheel, kind of like I thought QED and any good direct investor is. Right. I mean, that's how I thought about the flywheel to start my first fund was literally people calling saying, hey, uh, these family offices or these angel investors that I took money from are dog shit. They're not helping me and I need help and you're the right person to help me. So would you be willing to like be an advisor? I'm like, well, I'm only going to be an advisor if I give you money. 
to invest because I believe in the investment thesis as well. And that's how the whole idea for our fund came about. But you had the same hypothesis from the emerging manager side because you saw it firsthand at the QED side of the equation. But maybe share some examples of the initial LPs that you were meeting with and the ones that you attracted to the strategy and why you think they decided to support you in your mission. The initial LPs were people who didn't have much exposure to venture and saw this strategy, slipstream strategy, as an opportunity to get it, in part appealed to them, I think, because it was has built in diversification across funds and geographies and time and sectors. and But it's also concentrated enough um, that should be able to generate returns if we're in good funds. And some saw it as an opportunity to put more money into the underlying funds breakout companies. And then over time, as this has gone going, it's appealed to family offices and other groups who want help building out their own venture strategies. But that was that was less of it when I was getting going. Got it. And did you have to show a list of firms that you'd already pre-sourced uh, that were matching your investment thesis for them to say, oh, I, see, I could already see these investments happening and succeeding? Like, how did your original... Uh, investment allocations and deal flow sourcing evolve after those initial LPs committed? So my initial deal sourcing was from relationships with that I had with people at QED. I mean, candidly, the original thesis, I mean, not there was never like an official thesis, but my hypothesis was if I only invest in the, in the best funds that we're sourcing deals from at QED, like sort of best in, I guess, my own opinion, that should be a pretty good fund in its own right. But that was not that strategy. But initially, it started with relationships I had with funds that I met at QED and that I hadn't met at QED, but folks at QED thought highly of. Then it kind of evolved into, yeah, fun. then I started sourcing deals from funds we've invested in, funds we've passed on, established venture firms, other LPs, and sort of cold inbound and events and slipstream LPs. And I've, I've always done outbound. Like There have always been funds that I've wanted to meet and that I think highly of and that's been a part of it too. You know, given how many VC funds emerged, you know, in the last decade, let alone the last few years, you know, what was your uh, filter like in the beginning and how did you kind of start raising the bar every time you started seeing a new hundred lot of venture funds emerge? As you said before, there were so many ones that were raising funds that you were like, I don't think this is actually the right emerging manager to bet on, but they're really good at fundraising versus ones who are struggling at fundraising, but really were the great ones to bet on from a returns profile. You know, how did that evolve over time? The advice that I typically give people is the advice that I took myself, which is see a lot of deals before you make a lot of investments. And like you wouldn't be in market raising a fund. I wouldn't be here Raising fund one, let's say you're my, I haven't done a closing yet, Matt, and I'm like fundraising. I wouldn't be here if I didn't have a strong point of view about what, about my ability to find these funds, right? And evaluate them. But, but I needed, I knew I needed to see a lot. I was basically trying to talk to anyone who was a potential fit, but I like balancing the, I had to be respectful of everyone's time. And like, if it's, if it's clearly not a fit, I should say that in advance and, and give them a chance to like not spend their time. It's funny because that's the same advice I give our team when meeting companies. Like at the early stage of an analyst or associate's career with us, I tell them, I don't want you to have an opinion on any companies. I want you to see 10,000 companies. I want you to know which ones are the really good ones based on what you see from the other 9,900 ones. And I want you to know what the really shitty ones look like before you start to think what is good and bad. Because most people face it, when they get into this business, everything looks good. Everything looks rosy and can become the next Facebook. But you need to see a lot to know what's good and bad. When I had my first closing, 
there were three funds I wanted to invest in that, that I had prior relationships with, two of them going back many years. One of them, QED, had a relationship with for years also. So, but over time, I have tried to, I mean, I still try to talk to any firm that could be, that is a potential fit, but I'm, I'm, I try to be very clear beforehand if like, it's unlikely I would get there or like during the call, during an initial call, like if we have time or shortly after, you know, if it's not a fit, I, you have to be respectful of people's time, but yeah, over time, I think I've just refined what I'm looking for. It's very much what I set out to what I told people I was looking for. And when I started this, I'm just faster at, at identifying it. Like now I can see it very quickly. Whereas I did a little more work to get there in as I was just getting this started. Maybe I need a second call or I do some references to realize, Hey, this isn't quite a fit. And now I, I get there much faster. Okay. So let's double click on that. So you, you now have a much better filter and you're quicker at that filter, just like we are when picking founders. So, you know, what are some of the common characteristics or qualities that our successful looking emerging managers have versus the ones who are totally not a fit and, and not to say they won't be successful, but just not a fit for you? A few things. And I should be careful because there are a lot of ways to win in venture. And what I'm looking for is not the only way. But what I'm typically looking for is a few things. One, it's a portfolio construction that I think can generate fund level returns. So at a very high level, that's high enough ownership in companies that hopefully every or almost every investment has the potential to return the fund. The second thing is something unique or special about the fund managers. That's the reason I think they will win across multiple vintages. Like, why should they keep winning? Why is this edge that they have durable. Another way to think about it is just like the reason they should be able to generate a flywheel usually relates to sourcing, picking, winning, adding value. Um, ideally all of those. I am most drawn to fund managers who have a combination of operating background at successful venture back companies, domain expertise, track record at a prior firm of sourcing and winning deals at this stage. But but I invest in generalist funds too, and I don't. I'm not only in sector focused funds, and so as a general matter, I'm looking for some kind of durable competitive advantage um, that's unique to the team. Another thing is demonstrated value add to founders, like consistent feedback from founders that like this is their most or one of their most helpful investors. Consistent feedback from later stage investors in the categories where this fund is investing, that they think highly of this fund, that they want to see their deals, that they trust their evaluation of what's going on um, in these companies and in these sectors at the earlier stage. The next thing would be a thoughtfulness about getting liquidity from investments. That is its own unique skill set, and it's obviously really important. The last thing I would say is like scrappy, driven, resilient. Like Venture's a long game with lots of ups and downs, and ventures are, venture funds are moving core tiles multiple times before they sort of settle into where they'll ultimately end up. And I'm looking for people who have that long-term mentality and have that sort of scrappiness and drive to get through a long slog. Uh, but again, like my formative years were at QED that shaped my view of what a top, top emerging manager or what a top early stage venture fund manager looks like. But one, it's not the only way to win. And two, venture is changing. It's changed since QED started 15 years ago. And so I'm constantly thinking about, I'm constantly challenging myself on this and questioning whether this is the right, whether I have the right framework. And that's, that's what I look for now, but, but it's constantly evolving. 
Yeah, I'm sure it is. And I'm sure gut feeling has a bit of, a bit to do with it, given how much qualitative data there is to go on versus just a quantitative one, especially with emerging managers. Yeah, it's funny you say that because, yeah, like the more funds you see and the more you sort of hone what you're looking for and get better at identifying it quickly. Yeah, I try to police that because I do have a strong gut feeling and I want to let it play out. I want to be open minded and not very rigid. And I also need to be careful about not being biased. Maybe I have a great gut feeling, but like I need to run the same process. I need to do the same work for every fund. Right. Uh, I mean, you've mentioned this a couple of times now and knowing when to return capital. You know, venture capital is often seen as a high risk, high reward asset class. We all know that. You know, so how do you personally approach risk management with your own investments? And are there any unconventional strategies or philosophies that you follow that other emerging managers should think about? You know, I know how I approach returning capital to LPs given my public market, you know, emotional roller coaster of investing experience when approaching private assets. How do you think about it personally? The strategy, my strategy builds in diversification and rich risk management. So like there's diversification across funds, companies, time, geographies, sectors, across funds. You know, I'm making roughly nine to 12 core investments per fund of mine. So each investment is typically eight to 12% of the fund. I'm diversified across companies. Like we should have exposure to roughly 300 to 500 companies. We're diversified across time. The current fund, we should have five years of vintage year diversification. We've invested in a fund that started investing in 2020. We'll be investing in funds. We'll get exposure to funds that start investing in 2024 and everything in between. I'm I'm U.S. focused, but I have but I invest outside of the U.S. and obviously diversified across sectors. So I feel like risk management is kind of built into this strategy beyond the diversification that I just laid out. I don't think much more about. It. In terms of generating liquidity, it's different for people investing in companies than it is for folks investing in funds. But but there are paths for people investing in funds. But it's largely talking to fund managers about their thinking about liquidity and hopefully being a thought partner to them if they're open to it as they see opportunities. But yeah, I mean, you can. there are secondary opportunities for LP investments and some LPs look to sell their investments in funds in secondary context. Yeah, not the secondary. I was more focusing on like, how do you suggest to GPs how they should think about liquidity over the life of a fund? You know, some LPs say, you know, seven years or prior, don't worry about liquidity. You know, we're in it for the the 3X DPI. So, you know, hopefully by year seven, eight, and nine, we'll start to see those. But if you sell anything, you know, in years three, four, five, you know, you've exited too early. Yeah. So with respect to fund managers getting exits, how I think about it is, I think I sort of have a few sort of guiding principles here. One is um, I hope that people think about every round as an opportunity to buy or sell. Doesn't mean they'll have the chance, but I hope they're thinking about it. I hope they're tracking their thinking about it contemporaneously as these opportunities arise. I think there's some value in that and that I, and that it can't, and I think it can be actionable, um, that data. Second thing is if, yeah, like if you can take meaningful, if you can return your fund or more and keep 20 to 30% of, and by only taking off 20 to 30% of your ownership in a company, I do think that's compelling. I'm, it's up to them. I'm a, I want to be a thought partner to them, but I'm not going to push people to do anything. I have seen more regrets about holding too long than selling too early, although I have seen regrets about both. I think as companies stay private longer, which is sort of a general trend, 
my hope is that people are being proactive about getting liquidity when it can be meaningful to the fund and not just waiting for an IPO or an exit. But I get it, and it's case-specific in any case. And so i very deferential to fund managers. No, that's a good point. Uh, I definitely see both sides of the equation. Um, you know, for our LPs, um, they're happy that we've returned liquidity, you know, in under five years in our first fund and and expect us to continue to hold on to our winners. But, you know, because I'm such a large LP as well, I think I also think a lot like our LPs, which is a difference sometimes among emerging managers who are only in it for the carried interest, which to be honest, you need home runs to get that. Um, and so it's hard to you know, balance the two when you have different, when you sit on different sides of the table, but when you sit on both sides of the table as an LP and a GP, I think it helps uh, align you a little bit more. Wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. And I think what you're saying is right on and, and sort of reminds me of two things that I should have said. One is, yeah, early liquidity is amazing for a variety of reasons. One, you want to show you have the muscle. You want to show that you have, you can generate DPI because ultimately this is not about unrealized gains. Like this is about distributing capital back to folks at a multiple of their commitment. The second thing is that for emerging managers who are just getting started, sometimes their LP base actually needs that, needs the capital back to invest in the next fund, or at least it's valuable and makes it more likely that they will re-up in your next fund if you've already given them some liquidity before you, while you're still fundraising for your next fund. So or whatever fund you're on, actually, if you're giving them liquidity from their original investment, they have more capital to deploy in your next fund. That's not true for everyone. Of course, some people have plenty of capital to deploy. They don't need that, but it is true for some. Setting that aside, it's an important thing to do. Early liquidity is amazing for a variety of reasons. I think now that we're coming out of what happened in 2020 and 2021, and we've seen how different managers have dealt with the markups their companies were getting, some were selling, some were very proactive, some were not selling, and and maybe some may feel like they should have tried to sell more in that period of time. It does feel like the L community, LP community is putting it maybe a incrementally greater emphasis on getting liquidity for folks who didn't take any and probably had opportunities to in the height of you know, 2020, 2021. And so I do think LPs are looking for some size that, that you can distribute capital back. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, speaking of uh, good signs, let's talk about bad signs. You know, what are some red flags for emerging managers that scare off LPs that people should be aware of? You know, communication, transparency, reporting, things like that? A few things. So, for example, on like fund size, if a, if a fund manager can't articulate why their target fund size is right for their strategy and what needs to happen... For them to generate great fund level returns, given their fund size and their strategy, like their ownership and their reserve strategy, that's a red flag for me. To be fair, though, I spend time with people who are working through that before they go to market, and it is a candid sort of brainstorming conversation, and that is not a red flag to me. I think it's once you go to market and you sort of commit yourself to a strategy, but can't really articulate like why, why this fund size, why this strategy, why this ownership. How is this going to generate returns? What needs to happen for this to generate returns? In the category of fund size, just increase, like significant increases in fund size can be a red flag. It, or it can just be harder to underwrite. Like, hey, you did an amazing job deploying a $5 million fund, but you're raising a $100 million fund now. And that is very different. And a lot of things need to be true now that, that didn't need to be true for the $5 million fund. The last thing I'll say on fund size is just having like a big delta between a target fund size and a hard cap. Sometimes I see folks coming out with a hard cap that's like 
twice the size of their target fund. And and if the fund size is very small, maybe not a big deal. But like when it's not, it's sort of like, well, what do you actually want? What's the right strategy for you? I don't really know what you're going for here. And I don't necessarily know how to do the work in evaluating it. If you might be leading rounds, you might be writing participating checks. And so so that can be a red flag for me. Um, on portfolio construction, just, I mean, some people don't focus much on ownership and that can work for some strategies, but but not focusing on the level of ownership that a fund needs to generate great fund level returns. That's typically a red flag for me, but there are lots of views on this. And so there's not just one way and, and I should be careful about that. Yeah. I like the hard cap point. You know, we actually don't even talk about the hard cap. We actually talk about minimum viable fund size with the portfolio construction that matches that and then target fund size. I think if anyone's like, you know, oh, what's your hard cap? It's like, well, it's not really a point of discussion because we'll see if we get to our target. Once we cross our target, then we'll go back to the LPs and say, look, we're going to hit our hard cap. And this is the portfolio structure that we're going to go out with if we get there. So, you know, I, I think it's a difference in structure of uh, what kind of investments you can make if you hit your hard cap, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. It depends on how much higher it is than your target. And 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 what you see sometimes is folks who start investing. I mean, I guess this could be another red flag. People who start investing when they don't have their full fund raised and they aren't sure how big it's going to be. And so their investments, their initial investments end up being too small for the strategy they later have when they finish fundraising. I mean, it's not necessarily a red flag, but it is something that is on my mind as people are fundraising. If uh, And it can be a red flag if they want to, if there's a big delta between the target and the art gap and they start raising it when they get to the target and, Oh, sorry, they start deploying when they get to the target, but then they get to the hard cap and it's like, hold on, your fund sizes went up by 50%. Your ownership in those first investments is probably not what it should be, but you didn't know at the time you made those, you'd end up with this big fund. And so, but then it's hard for me if I'm not an early investor. And if I was like a first close investor, then it's like, well, hold on. I, I wish I would have known that you were going to continue fundraising. So a few other things like, Pacing, like over the last few years, some funds have deployed very quickly. I value time diversification. I also value just like moving slowly and sticking to a strategy. I think I think there's value in that. If funds deployed very quickly over the last year and a half or a few years, you know, in that sort of 20 to 20, 22 period, it's not necessarily a red flag. It's just a sort of a conversation I want to have. How does Slipstream... Uh, assist the LPs that you work with, including the family offices, in shaping their venture capital strategies? First of all, I bring them funds that I think could be a fit for them. They are not always a fit for Slipstream. Like I might pass on a fund that's a fit for an LP of mine. And so I try to bring them funds that could be a fit for them. Uh, share my diligence with them if I've done my if I've done diligence on a fund that they're interested in. Help them diligence it if I haven't done the work. Generate co-investment opportunities. For them, just that's naturally through what I'm working on at Slipstream. We generate co-investment opportunities, and some groups really want that uh, the exposure, the opportunity to put more money into those companies. So it's kind of like how we think about our family offices as LPs in our fund who want to be a co-investor for a Series A or Series B investment later on, or companies that we pass on that they are looking at from their own family office will help assist them on due diligence. It sounds like you do the same thing with the family offices who are LPs in your fund of funds. Right. And and the distinction there is just like, I'm helping them more with funds than companies, but also with companies. 
Right, exactly. You know, given the volatility where we've been seeing in the markets lately, you know, how are you navigating the market, you know, gyrations as a limited partner in venture capital funds? And are there any specific strategies or precautions you take to mitigate risk during, you know, challenging economic times like this? You know, I think it's inherent in my strategy. Um, I don't really do things differently now. I have diversification across funds and companies and time and geography and sectors. And I, I think that's the right thing for a time like now. And I think it's the right thing when the market is hotter. Like, I think that's the strategy. I'm not trying to time the market. I, I wouldn't know how to do that. I wouldn't trust myself to do that. My goal is, is to have diversification built into this. And it's also, you know, I guess at a higher level, like my belief here is that you invest in specific funds with specific managers who are investing in specific companies with specific founders. And and if you're investing with great folks, there's no bad time. I mean, we agree as well. Obviously, we continue to deploy capital and a lot of our LPs keep coming back fund after fund, you know, over 70%, which is great. You know, but looking ahead, you know, what do you envision for the future of Slipstream as well as the entire venture capital industry in terms of emerging trends, opportunities, and how do you anticipate the role of limited partners evolving over the coming years? Oh man, there are, there are a lot of great questions. So, uh, so I'm constantly thinking about what the future of venture is. I'm not sure I have an answer, but who do I think is going to win? Is it sector specialists? Is it pre-seed funds? Since so many investors, you know, including multi-stage investors, are playing at seed. Is it the small funds writing participating checks alongside tier ones? Is it operator-led funds, right, where a GP sort of full-time operating role and also seeing great deals and investing? I'm asking myself this question all the time. I don't know if I have an answer. What I what I think will always be true is that funds that stay small and get high ownership relative to their fund size will have a great chance of outperforming. I think venture will always be about relationships between founders and investors. I think it will continue to be artisanal. I think reputation and brand will always be paramount. You need to build a flywheel. And if you can do it, you can succeed across multiple funds and vintages. If you, yeah, how will LPs change is an interesting question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. I think the LP base is evolving and increasingly we are thinking about ways to bring in folks who don't have exposure to venture. There are a lot of people thinking about that. I think that's a good thing. I think people should add exposure to venture. It's it's an excellent asset class. You can get into the best funds. But that, those are the things that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like we have a lot of the same beliefs and, and why we you know get along so well and have so many similar conversations around strategies and you know opportunities in the space. I got to ask before we jump into our fast favorites, what's the best career advice you've ever received from another LP in the space? I, I don't know if I've heard it from an LP, maybe just like folks in the in venture in general, but it's the, this is a long game. It takes a long time to build an enduring entity and venture. It takes genuine, trusting, long-term relations relationships. It takes a lot of patience. Ultimately, it does take great returns, and those will hopefully come. But I am constantly reminded of how long this game is. Yeah, it's a, it's a quote I heard. I remember saying, the people you see on the, on the way up are the same people you see on the way down. So make sure you treat everyone the same way because you never know when that elevator shaft is going to be going up or down in your career. So it's a long game and you got to treat everyone the same along the way. All right. Well, let's jump into our fast favorites. Your first off favorite podcast. Oh, man. I don't know if I can pick anyone for any of these, but I listen to a bunch of tech 
uh, tank talk episodes. I'm not just saying that. <laughs> I like Origins, 20 VC, Venture Unlocked, Sure Shot Entrepreneur. There are so many. There's so many good ones. So many good ones. Agreed. Favorite newsletter or blog? You know, when I was a little earlier, like when I was at QED, I w- I really enjoyed reading Mark Suster's Both Sides of the Table. I still actually look back. I think there's it's great. I've enjoyed reading that for years. I like Open LP. I like. I mean, Twitter isn't a newsletter or a blog, but I I enjoy reading sort of VCs talking on Twitter. Is, is Frank one of your favorite Twitter follows? Frank is amazing. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Yeah. Favorite tech gadget? Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but like, I would be lost without a smart trainer for my road bike. Like, it gets me through the winter, maintains my sanity. Which one do you have? I have a cycle. I have an old Cyclops hammer at the moment. Oh my god! On this last legs. <laughs> old school. Yeah. Okay. Favorite new trend? They're probably tried at this point, but I working from home. Like I don't invest without meeting in person, and it's very hard for me to fundraise without meeting in person. So I'm traveling and meeting people in person all the time. But I really enjoy working from home. Yeah. Do you find yourself to be more efficient that way? Just cut down all the travel and driving around? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm productive, efficient home for family. Yeah. Good balance for sure. Favorite book. When I think about this question, I just constantly, I am always reminded of man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's been a long time since I've read it. He was in Auschwitz and Dachau and other camps during the Holocaust and lots of learnings from that. But, uh, one that sticks with me is like, even in the most extreme circumstances, like you can have almost everything taken from you. You maintain control over your attitude, your thoughts, your feelings. That is powerful on something that keeps you grounded and humble for sure. That's, yeah, that's yeah. A, a great well, book. Yeah. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Oh man. I don't think anyone should be listening to life lessons for me. <laughs> a few that I think about that like sort of guide me. I try to focus on what I can control, what I can control. I, I focus on the process that I have in place and, tr- and hopefully, and I try to focus less on the outcomes and just sort of trust, trust the process and tweak it and improve it. But, but focus on that. Uh, I just like being good to everyone, treating people well. And the last last for me is like staying open-minded, opportunistic, professionally and personally. Yeah, absolutely. Play the long game, right, Alex? That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us in the tank today with Alex Edelson, founder and general partner at Slipstream. Man, thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 